0: To begin at the beginning, when you set up your QMS, you need to start with the procedures and processes that will reduce risk and help you prepare for your submission in the long run. That would come through managing your documents.
1: Welcome to CMC Live. This is the
0: show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities with your host, Ed Narki.
2: Hello everyone, it's Ed Narky once again. Welcome to CMC Live here again to play another round of what are your thoughts with uh, regulatory drug development and CMC operations in hand, again with my co-host Miranda and Brian as always. So Miranda and Brian, hello. So just one note today, beginning of the start of the PDA conference, Pernal Drug Association, 2021 style virtual, starting today live from New Orleans. Really wish I was in New Orleans for the conference for many reasons, obviously. But we'll we'll give it a go. I'm going to touch at the end of the podcast here, some introductions for next week's podcast, and also some more information on uh, PDA and, and what we've learned over the last year. Essentially, touching on the beginner's guide to quality management systems. Um, would your company like to realize better productivity and less waste? You know, how many. How, many, how much information, how much knowledge goes into this? Who does this? So stepping back, just you know, for those that aren't familiar, quality management system, QMS, might be a solution you're looking for. So unfortunately, these management systems, highly complex, and many companies struggle with uh, implementing them. So we're gonna kind of go through maybe a beginner's guide here to QMS, how it's designed to provide you with knowledge, tools, resources, when to do it, what quality management systems are, and how they can improve your business functions and day-to-day operations. Uh, so this podcast also could provide some tools and resources that can help you learn how to successfully implement this into your business. A couple of the areas, uh, and I won't get too deep into this, uh, again, as we talked about, what is what is the quality management system and why does it matter? Maybe a little bit of a history on the quality management system, why it started, and most important discoveries, especially from our eyes, what we've seen. Um, how companies are uh, using uh, QMS today to improve things, some different methods to managing quality, some of the biggest obstacles in QMS and and how to avoid them, and uh, some of the automation that's involved. So without further ado, I will maybe turn it over to Brian here to introduce our delightful team here, a lot of experiences uh, from our quality unit, Tina and Robbie and Susan and etc. So with that, Brian, why don't you maybe give us some backgrounds?
3: So welcome to this edition of CMC Live. We're here with our quality services team at DSI, and we're fortunate to have the whole team here. And what we'd like to cover is the quality management system. So before we get too far, I want to let folks introduce themselves and we'll start with the head of quality assurance services here at DSI, Patina Kaplan.
4: Thank you, Brian. A little about myself. I'm in the industry 30 plus years. I've worked in all aspects of quality from QC through QA and all levels up through senior vice president in the industry at various companies and all different product types and dosage forms. And I've been a consultant for DSI for roughly five years and I enjoy it. Quality
3: is my passion. Great. Thank you. And now we're going to go to Susan Fosso.
4: Hi,
5: I'm Susan Faso. I've also been in the pharmaceutical industry over 30 plus years and was involved in multiple dosage forms, working for a small pharma as well as big pharma. I have a degree in chemistry and also a master's degree in quality and regulatory affairs. And I've been in the GXP arena, meaning drug development, as well as commercial
3: product, products. Thank you. And then the next person, Robbie Friesen, has been with DSI from its inception. So, Robbie. Hi,
0: I'm Robbie Friesen. I have also been in the industry for over 30 years. I started out in product of biological vaccine product development, and I've worked in large pharma startup companies and performed many
3: quality functions over the years. Perfect. Thank you very much. And then lastly, well, we've got Maria. Maria, you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, uh, Maria Arakil. I have not been in the industry 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I have been in the industry a little over 11 years now. Worked with also various dosage forms. My specialty is QA and vendor oversight.
3: Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. When you go down 30, 30, 30, it's anything <laughs> less than that. Really? 11 years is a long time. But I think the important thing to note here is that the areas that we cover, and again, we're going to talk about quality management systems, there's a a breadth of experience here that it's rare that you get them all in one call talking about these topics. So we're really looking forward to the content on this and really hope that this provides some insight for the folks listening at, at Podcast. So why don't we start with quality management? And first of all, would anyone like to take what exactly is a quality management system? Because some of our smaller clients will look at a QMS and say, well, like, do I really need it. I can't see where I actually need it. So perhaps someone could talk a little bit about what a quality management system is before we get to whether it's important or not.
5: Well, it provides an infrastructure for a company to so that to ensure the quality of your drug product with the sa- patient safety in mind as primary function.
3: Okay, so but like when you look at the brass tacks of it, what exactly is a QMS? Are we talking about policies? Are we what exactly makes up a QMS? It's the
0: organizational structure, uh, responsibilities, procedures, processes, and resources for implementing the quality management, which is necessary to have to build into the product the quality of the product for the safety of the
3: human being that it gets put into mm-hmm. well it's, it's interesting we had a podcast earlier with uh jim mensel and it'll be one of the episodes that you'll get to hear on CMC live and we talked about registration engineering the validation lots and the one thing he said that i don't think can be overlooked is the fact that Quality consideration has to be made early. So when you talk about how a range is set, how something is determined that actually winds up in a master batch record, you need to have the information to support that. So as you get into investigations, things like that, you need to have a good sound scientific rationale to support your assertion. So really inviting quality into the process sooner rather than later is certainly more cost effective. And it certainly does save time in the long run inviting that quality perspective into how uh, DOE protocols are written, batch records are drafted. It's really important. And having that infrastructure, I think, is, is essential. So then let me ask, Patina, what is the timing for QMS? We have a lot of our clients at DSI are early stage. And when they talk about, I don't need all of these SOPs, I'm just making a phase two clinical batch, And yes, they've actually said that. So When is really the right time for a QMS, and is it all encompassing? Is it all or nothing?
5: So QMS should begin as early as possible. GMPs are supposed to begin at phase one, but most companies don't do that. They think they can wait. I've worked for some companies where they waited till phase three, meaning they brought me into phase three, and that is not beneficial, obviously,
4: to the organization.
3: Okay, where you're you're playing catch-up.
4: Yeah, there's guidances that tell you at phase one, this is what's expected to be in place. Phase two and phase three, where you start to use your product in humans, you need to have your GMP set. You need to have basic procedures in place at phase two, and then continue by phase three to start getting them closer to commercial-like and I say commercial-like, until you get to commercial at the end. So you can break it up into key policies. Maybe you'll only do some policies and a couple SOPs to more SOPs at the next phase till your full SOPs, policies, and everything else. But you want to have a quality manual up front. You want to be able to say, this is what our vision is. This is what our quality statement is and how we're going to go about it. They can even have a plan of how they want to implement quality at their site over time at the various stages.
3: Well, I have so many questions about that. So quality manual, <laughs> uh, so what you know, I, like I said, I've been doing this for a while. And early in my career, midway through my career, quality manuals didn't really come up. They, they weren't really discussed. I mean, we had table of contents, SOPs. But I've worked at a few companies where we didn't have a quality manual. So could someone tell me why this quality manual is? What is it, by the way, other than a table of contents? What exactly does it do? It's really just
0: a
5: high level description of the infrastructure of your quality management system, basically. Okay. And as Bettina said, it includes your quality policy, your mission statement, The hierarchy of your documentation. Do you have policies, procedures, work instructions, for example? It'll show that. It'll tell you the high level requirements that you have to have adequate resources and personnel, and they have to be trained properly. They have to have the proper experience. And then it'll go into maybe some of the manufacturing portion or other aspects that are needed for your drug, substance, and drug
0: product. Okay.
4: And a lot of this. Brian, a lot of this has been reinforced by the introduction of ICH Q8, Q9, and Q10, that we've seen this infusion of the quality manual and a lot of other system parts of the quality management system that you never saw years ago. I don't know, Robbie, if you want to add more to that or
0: Maria? No, I I agree. It is started somewhere around 2008 with the implementation of the QMS in devices. And that's not right. That was 98. And it has merged into the biologics and pharmaceutical side because it is a structure as a virtual company, early phase. You can start by putting in place your quality manual, and from that, you can drop out the procedures that will follow to support that. It defines up front with the uh, quality policy what your plans are for the future, how you're going to act as you
3: move into later phases of development. Basically, your responsibility that the company is going to take in terms of quality going forward, that there is a plan. Right.
5: The other advantage of that, Brian, excuse me, is it helps determine and define the management's commitment to quality. Because if you don't have senior management level commitment, all could be
4: lost.
0: Yeah, 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 Right. right.
4: And that's what came out through Q8, Q9, and Q10. And you never saw them say, management is responsible for making sure you have adequate personnel, adequate training. They're now responsible for these things, which you never saw. GMPs don't define that. The ICH guidelines define it.
3: So I have a question. So one of the things, and Maria, this is for you, one of the things our industry is not lacking is the amount of acronyms I mean, every time I I, I see an acronym and I have to quickly look it up and there's about seven definitions of the same acronym. So one, (laughs) it's true, it just just seems to be what we do. But Maria, one of the things that I've heard, I guess in the last year or so, come up time and time again, I remember the little booklets, this thing called CFRs. And can you perhaps tell us what exactly the CFRs are and what is their
1: intended purpose? Because some people take them literally and I'm not sure that's how they were intended. So the CODA Federal regulations. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they're very high level. They don't really describe in detail how you're supposed to do things. So they tell you you're supposed to, for example, make sure all your employees have the proper education and training to do their jobs, but they don't tell you how to do it. So it's a very high level. And then the ICHs go into a little bit more in depth. So you do have to take the CFRs for what they're worth. They they tell you what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to have, and that's what you get audited on. But nobody actually says how to do it. So your procedures that you create are supposed to define exactly how you do it. And there are some industry standards on how to do certain things because the CFRs are so high level and very general well, you need to remember that
0: the CFR actually is the rule of law. It's the
4: law. Mm-hmm. So
0: no matter how you accomplish what's in the CFR, you need to be doing it. It's the law.
5: I mean, they're the minimum requirements. They are minimum requirements. Right. And they're, they're broad because of the fact that the pharmaceutical industry has so many different variations of things.
0: Mm-hmm. So we
4: have to remember... CFR is a very broad term. CFR covers almost every industry in the country.
0: And it's chapter 21 that...
4: Right, chapter 21, CFR, blah, 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 covers pharmaceutical, medical devices, foods, a lot of different things.
0: Animal medicines. Right. yeah, Blood products.
4: Right. And that there are updates, and they're published by the FDA on a almost daily basis.
5: In the federal register. (laughs) Exactly.
4: But what we refer to as GMPs is in 21 CFR 210, 211 for drug products, A20 for medical devices. There's a couple of others for medical devices, even clinical, which is in a different part of the CFR, is covered in the CFR. And they are just the basics. And then just to give you an example with GMPs, we have this little C in front of it. And it's with all GXPs. So what is GXPs? GMPs, GLPs, GDPs, GCPs. It, X stands for everything. Right. The C goes in front of it because it means that's the current practices. FDA will cite you on something from the CFR, but they actually can cite you if you're not following what is expected by the agency. So the current practices, there's a lot of courses and a lot of venues where you can learn from other companies what is being done, what FDA is inspecting, because the CFRs don't have detail. So you always have to be up on what's being expected by you at the current
3: time. So I remember when I was first given that little book, when I first got started, I just (laughs) interpreted it, well, I'm going to have to remember this whole thing and then I realized early on that I was reading things that absolutely did not pertain to my job. And it was really having someone in my direction. Well, just pay attention to these two sections and don't do what it says not to do. Well, that was lovely guidance. I mean, you could drive a truck through the holes in, in that. So I think it's important to note that these are their guidance documents. And like any regulatory guidance documents, they, they are guidance. They don't tell you specifically how to do it because they rely on your education and training. And systems in place to develop those procedures that are governed in those. So those are things that, that I know from conversations I've had with various sponsors and their understanding of quality, especially small companies with, how should I say, defined budgets. Uh, having to impress upon them the need for quality, the need for quality oversight. It's really a challenge. You know, I think uh, certainly Rob, you and I have worked on a few projects in the past where we've been asked to put in phase appropriate. Quality system, and that's a great term. Again, it's large enough you can drive a truck through the holes in it, but but it really is something to note where it depends on the state of a program. How do you define any one of you? Want to, and we can back this around. How do you define phase appropriate?
0: Well, to begin at the beginning, when you set up your QMS, you need to start with the procedures and processes. That will reduce risk and help you prepare for your submission in the long run. And that would come through managing your documents and having change control and having documented that the people doing the work are appropriately trained since a virtual company is likely to be working with contract manufacturing organization, you need to put a quality agreement in place to ensure that they're following GMPs and that will support you in the long run in your submission process. Yeah. Uh, So Robbie, that's actually a good point. I think that some of our clients that come to us rely on the, the CMO to rely on their systems. So as a sponsor themselves, as a biotech company themselves, they need some SOPs and quality systems in place as well, right? Yes, that's very true. There are warning letters that I know of back to 2008 about companies that use contract manufacturers and think that they don't need to have their own quality systems in place and get cited for by the FDA for not taking on the quality responsibility
3: involved with the manufacturing of the product. Even so far as to say, even how the vendors themselves were selected, there's a procedure for that. So, you know, really.
5: The sponsor is ultimately responsible for the product, regardless of who's doing what to it. They also have to be responsible for releasing it. and it's written in black and white in several of their guidance documents that you cannot, you can contract it out. However, you are still ultimately responsible
3: and they forget that. People interpret and people interpret phase appropriate as meaning, well, I can do less because phase one, phase two, phase three, you know, it's still clinical. Early phase means I can do less. And I'm not quite sure that's accurate. I know I've worked with, several of you here, where we have worked with very small virtual companies and trying to impress upon them that whether, you know, what is the intended use of the material you're making? And I think that's the distinction that has to be raised.
5: I think the only, well, not to get into too much detail with phase one, but there is the phase one guidance document. And really, you still have to follow GMPs. They actually say it there. They just cut back maybe on some of the testing that you can use a CFA of of for the raw materials and excipients, or you don't have dedicated equipment, so they're worried about cross contamination. But basically, you still have to have the, your quality system in place to, do, to have the documentation of what you're doing as far as batch records. So it really just cuts down on some of the detail. But you still have to apply the same principles in phase.
4: Right. And once you go to phase two, you're going into human beings. So you now have responsibilities to make sure that this product is manufactured according to GMPs. You need to be sure that you have the right procedures in place. The other thing I try to remind everybody is even early on, the equipment you use, the instrumentation you use, you may not do full blown out in qualifications or validations, but you at least need to calibrate and do some interim method qualifications and validations to make sure that the value of the data you're gaining out of these experiments and trials are scientifically sound. If the data going in is, like I always say with GIGO, going in is garbage, you're going to get garbage out. You have no idea if that data is beneficial. So that's where you have your appropriateness. Is it full-blown or can you do an interim? The guidelines allow you at certain phases to have certain requirements for validation. It might be a full uh, phase two, but by phase three, you need to start getting your full validation done.
5: Things like that. Yeah, I mean, you could do more of a verification than a validation in phase one, but you better be ready by phase two if you
3: can. One of the things that's difficult to navigate for some of our clients and, and smaller companies out there is, and Maria, you and I saw this on that, that same project I referred to, where they'll pick up one guidance document and say, well, I'm meeting those requirements. But there's many other guidance documents out there. Right. And how do you pick and choose which one to follow? Is it ICH? Is it CFR? Is it SUPAC? Is it ISO? Uh, How do you determine what you have to adhere to at what phase? So if someone says, you know, I'm following CFRs, which, again, as we already stated earlier, is very, very broad. How do you educate them that, well, yes, you may be doing that, but you have to also do these things?
5: Well, first of all, Brian, CFR 210 and 211 are really for commercial product. Believe it or not, but we do use this. But we, but the regs, the guidance documents say to follow CFR for clinical material. Number one, number two, when you were talking about CFRs and guidance documents, CFR, as Robbie said, is the law. So we have to make sure we follow the CFR regulations. Mm-hmm. Guidance documents are just an opinion, and they actually say that in the documents. So you kind of try to do a combination of everything. ICH, and it's all according, is a product just for U.S., is it for the rest of the world? Because ICH is for you know the harmonization of um, Japan, EU, and U.S., So, you know, every situation is different, actually, but we must follow the CFR. Uh, 210
0: and 211 actually define the parts of GMP that your CMO needs will be if they're actually a licensed establishment following and have in place and what a virtual company needs to do Well, and GMPs need to be in place in phase one. I mean, that's why you use contract manufacturer. I mean, it is necessary for the safety of even the healthy people that it's that your new product is going into, just to test its safety, and the GMPs that the virtual company has in place because they're contracting is the reason why they can start simple. But uh, Mm -hmm. as they get further along in their process, there needs to be more fleshing out of how they're going to accomplish the commitments that they make in their quality management system. And then I think I just
4: want to add to that a little bit that, Now that we're doing a harmonized set of guidance documents, so ICH documents, we are expected to follow those, as well as, again, the guidance documents. And and you have to look at, like I said, the C for current. What is currently expected? Now, the other thing that comes into this is where is the product going to be used? Where is the product going to be filed? Is it being filed in the U.S. or is it being filed outside? Is it being filed in both U.S. and outside of the U.S.? Because there are other guidance documents and GMPs from other countries that we also might have to take into account when we're setting up a QMS system. If it goes to Europe, there's certain things that are stricter in Europe than they are in the U.S., and other things that are more lax. So you ne- might need to pick from both the most stringent because that's what your expectations are. So there's a lot
3: to consider. That brings me to my question. And Marie, I'll direct this to you. How important? I mean, so so from what I'm hearing is there's a lot of sources for information. So I could probably just look all this stuff up and I'll be just fine. I can look all this stuff up. I don't when it comes to quality and I mean. Look, it's really clear on this call. We have a lot of experience in quality assurance. How important is the experience? So Maria, you know, it seems to me like everything's written for me. I just have to go look it up. But what's the value in having an experienced quality person, these counterpart as you're working with a sponsor or CMO?
1: I think the the biggest thing with it is when you have somebody that's experienced and they've, they've been through various things like, let's say, FDA audits or have worked with a very small company versus a very large company, they can differentiate what you really need right now. You can look things up. There's a plethora of information and there's a bunch of it that you may not need at your phase, at your current phase. So you could potentially be overdoing it or maybe even underdoing it. Having somebody experienced there can guide you. In the right direction, what you actually need at what phase, and who's supposed to be doing it. Sometimes these companies don't have the right personnel to do it. And specifically, the CFR says you have to have the training experience to be able to do certain tasks. So, in other words, somebody that's, let's say, a scientist shouldn't be acting as quality because that's not what their experience is in or training. So, it is important to have somebody that actually knows what they're doing, phase appropriate.
3: That, I think that's a really important point to make. I think it was about, what, five or six years ago, I was on a, a project with a virtual company with Roddy, and we learned that the person responsible for distributing product was doing the final sign-off on all GMP batch records, and they didn't seem to have a problem with it because they didn't really have to read it. They just signed it, and then we realized what they were doing, and it was a real education process trying to explain to them that this is a terrible idea. And they were actually signing things that perhaps they shouldn't or had no working knowledge of what they were signing. They just knew they needed a signature on that line before they could distribute the product. And I remember, I can spare you all the colorful descriptors, but I remember our response to that once we found out what was going on. And it was a real education because you had people that really didn't understand or appreciate what quality represented. Do you remember that project, Robbie?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah seems to me that we were not
3: early phase at that point. We were not. No, we were actually moving to commercial, that's correct.
4: One thing that virtual companies, I think, need to realize is that they can be inspected as well as the CMOs, and they can get observations for supplier management, appropriate personnel, having the training and experience for work. A lot of things that we're talking about now. So it's not only your CMOs that get inspected by FDA, but you actually can get inspected as a virtual company by FDA or other agencies. I can attest
5: to that, Bettina, because uh, I was head of quality at one firm and I had a fast track and accelerated approval product. And we had the clinical portion in, we had the CMC portion in, PAI was already done. We were just waiting for clinical data. And they came and sat with me for two weeks at a virtual company because of the fact that, you know, we wanted to get it approved. You know, they were, they recognized that, but they can come. I mean, we were surprised. And like I said, they stayed for two weeks.
3: There's another distinction there. And I remember this from the project I just mentioned working with Robbie. I learned a lot actually on that project because there were SFPs that simply didn't exist. Document document retention, product recall. These are all the responsibility of the sponsor. And then exactly. what happens over time? These small companies get a comfort established with their their consultants, but the consultants are not the sponsor. And I think that was a real distinction. And we've had to do this throughout just in time. I've worked with DSI as we as we bring in quality support for these sponsors. It's that constant reminder that you're still the responsor. Can someone tell me why a quality agreement is really even needed?
5: It delineates the responsibilities of who's doing what or how they're transferring the obligation to the CMO.
3: Basically. And the FDA requires it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so legal doctors. You guys just gave me a <laughs> that ton of reasons. I need FDA one. Right, legal, FDA, you need it. Okay. So next time it comes up in conversation, I'm going to say, please make sure you have it. Understood.
5: It wasn't required before until I think it went into ICH, basically, believe it or not. Yeah. It wasn't required in the U.S. at first. It was more a European thing. And then when it went to ICH, that's when everybody started doing it.
3: That's a good idea. It's funny. For those of you listening to the podcast, you'll see that particular question eliciting quite a few responses. And for many, many reasons, it has to be done. I will say that Miranda and I have been in conversations with potential clients, and we talk about the need where the first thing you do is establish that quality agreement. So that we call the responsibility matrix, which is in the back of the document, clearly states out for people like me that needs it really clearly defined, who does what and who's responsible for what. It doesn't mean you stop looking at it, but ultimately, you're responsible for this aspect of the quality system. So it's something that's important. It's something that it's surprising how often we have to explain that. But as someone had mentioned, it's it's really just come on with the harmonization of EU expectations, which it's not a bad document to have.
1: It's legally binding as well. So if yeah. somebody doesn't do something, then you can go back
3: and... Yeah, that'll make you sit up in your chair. Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it runs
0: kind of parallel to... The clinical practice of delegation of responsibilities.
5: Yeah, the transfer of obligations document.
3: Right. So, uh, Miranda, maybe you can ask the question, but we talked about the QMS at the top of the call. And is things like a quality agreement mentioned in the QMS so that it's an overarching governing document of your quality system? Are things like that, that level of granularity of detail mentioned in the QMS?
4: It depends on how detailed you have your quality manual. But in the QMS, quality agreements fall under supplier management.
5: Yeah, vendor qualification and
4: oversight of the vendors. Mm-hmm. And that's where it falls under. And it that's where you would see it being addressed. So, yes, yes, I would say that it you can state that it is covered under QMS, and it should also be delineated in your quality manual. Especially because you're a virtual company. Right. And there should be
5: an SOP for one also, meaning at that level.
3: Okay. I think Mm -hmm. one thing to note for those folks that are listening to the podcast is that we haven't had a lot of differing opinions on the call today. So it seems to me there's a lot of continuity in what's being said and what's expected out there in industry. So I think this is really helpful to people that are learning more about what a quality system is. When it's needed, the fact that it is needed, and I really think that your different opinions and level of experience all seem to point in the same direction—that something like the QMS is absolutely important in establishing quality as a priority in a company.
0: So, thank you all for joining us today on CMC Live. I know it's very hard to get everybody on the same call. So, does anybody have anything else they'd like to say about quality systems?
4: Just that they're the key to your organization and putting it in at the right time will help you in the long run. You will have a more successful PAI and that your product will hopefully have been produced with quality first and in the product versus having to slap on a band later, which is something you want to stay away from.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Bettina, Susan, Maria, and Robbie. We really appreciate you joining us today. And thank you, uh, Brian, for leading this call. Thank you, everyone. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Miranda. Bye bye. Thank
2: you. Too, bye. Thanks, everyone. So, to everyone in the call today here in the podcast, I appreciate it. I learned a lot. There's an old Chinese proverb if you want to find out about the road ahead, then ask about it from those coming back very appropriate here so on next week's podcast we will will be talking a bit about the purpose of pharmaceutical microbiology and maybe touch on some of the information in the manual at the uh, the fda manages collectively clarifying and standardizing communicating information on how you're dealing with those type of things like that we'll have mike carroll and shelly on the podcast. Um, and again, to, to talk maybe, maybe another Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. That's kind of a, a lead into the end of our season here, CMC Live, 24 episodes. Do encourage you all to go back. We have covered many of the topics in drug development from APIs to regulatory starting materials, to ICH guidances, to drug product issues, just to some background on how we all got here and in, in our experiences and what, what, drove, what drove us here, in fact. So let us know what you guys think of the topics. We always, as always, love your feedback, email, comments on uh, any anywhere where you receive the, the podcast. We love your comments. Um, sometimes they make us laugh and sometimes they give us ideas for more things. Sometimes we learn a few things as well. So I'd love to chat with you guys. We look forward to our next season. We'll be on brief hiatus here. One exciting thing I wanted to announce here is in between, we will have a sort of pseudo podcast blog called 10 Minutes in the Gold Mine Where yours truly, Ednarki, will be going through some of his previous blogs and reading them and kind of just giving a little bit more insight on literally five minutes of your time. You can listen to this at the gym, driving in the car, anywhere you get your podcast, of course. So once again, thanks. Look forward to an engaging 2021 and new year, a more successful year than last year, and of course, success for everyone. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode,
0: please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.